Hello, Andrea. So we just got back from Thanksgiving break. How was your vacation? Hi, Fiona. Well, my break was so nice. I was in Southern California back at home and it was really warm and sunny out. I went surfing a few times. So funny, actually, my flight from LAX to DCA, my um, flight was actually delayed for 30 minutes because of the low visibility and rainy weather in DC and it was just so opposite to the warm sunny November Southern California like how that was and now I'm just all bundled up my winter coat and my hot chocolate and over this past week too I had the chance to reflect on things I'm really grateful for and something that I really have a lot of gratitude for right now is fly on the wall geopolitics and of course all of our listeners. I definitely want to echo your gratitude. I'm so thankful for our listeners, geopolitics, and of course the fly family. But over Thanksgiving break I stayed in the DMV area. I did not get the warm California weather like you did, but I did go to a bookstore and pick up a book by Mark Leibovich, who we had the pleasure of interviewing in early November. Yes, Mark Leibovich has such an incredible history as a journalist. He was the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine for over a decade. He is currently the staff writer for The Atlantic, and he is the author of This Town and Thank You for Your Servitude. In this interview, we talked about his experience as a journalist and profiling politicians, specifically those closest to Trump. And he also touched on his views on elitism and nepotism in DC. This was such a great conversation. We hope you enjoy the interview. So let's get into it. And definitely, it was such an amazing interview. And we just also want to premise that this interview was recorded on November 3rd. So we hope you enjoy. Mark Leibovich, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you on Fly on the Wall. It's great to be here. So you just came out with a new book called Thank You for Your Servitude about Republicans who bent the will of Donald Trump. Yes. When you started speaking to your subjects for your book, what were you expecting and what were you surprised to learn? Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, essentially to sort of back up a little bit, what I did, what I wanted to do was write a book about the Trump era to try to explain what it was like to be here during these years, because there is no shortage of books about the intrigue in the Trump White House, all the stuff that went on, all the, I mean, we just keep learning new things with new books every week. Um, I didn't need to understand the next level of Donald Trump psychoanalysis. I didn't need to understand his supporters. I mean, there have been any number of efforts to try to do that. I thought, and I still think, that the underreported story of Washington during these years has been the Republican Party and what has happened to it. And the people who know better, the, the leaders of the party, the putative leaders of the party, like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, photographed right over your right shoulder, um, and a number, number of other people who basically let Donald Trump define the party, take over the party, and here we are seven years later where he is still you know, the leading figure in the party, probably the front runner to be the nominee for the third consecutive time, mm -hmm. and here we are still here. But that didn't have to happen. It happened because the Republican Party let him, and I wanted to write a, you know, I, I think a tough but ultimately a fun and hopefully funny book about what this all looked like, and, and for some reason all these people talked to me. So um, that's been an enduring mystery throughout my career, um, but I have a lot of first-hand 
uh, intelligence about what it was like for them. Definitely. And I kind of want to ask you a little bit more of that last part, just from a journalistic standpoint. I'm curious how, like, what the accessibility to the Trump world has been like, because you would think that these people wouldn't want to talk to the press and wouldn't want, like, at risk of possibly retaliation from the Trump administration. So what has that experience been like in writing? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think, um, first of all, I mean, I didn't cover the Trump White House. I mean, I didn't really deal very much with, like, the Steve Bannons or the Corey Lewandowski's or the Sarah Sanders's. Or, I mean, there's a scene with um, uh, Sean Spicer, but, uh, I mean, it's like, in uh, Hope Hicks is someone I dealt with a fair amount. But, it, but you know, most for the most part, these are elected leaders. These are people who are still prominent and probably will be going forward even more so after next week. I mean, mm-hmm. McCarthy could be Speaker. Uh, Lindsey Graham, you know, because of his friendship or ongoing relationship with... Trump is going to be a major player. Um, so they're all still here. Um, you know, the retaliation piece is, is interesting. I mean, look, being a member of the press now is a lot more menacing than it was before Donald Trump ran for president. Um, and I've sort of seen the progression. Uh, I worked at the New York Times during all these years. And, you know, at the beginning, we just sort of figured, okay, this is what we do. And at the end, we had armed guards in our building and, you know, more threats than ever. And, that's sort of the world we're living in now. And yeah, it's important to sort of point out that that's fascism in, this, in a sense. I mean, that's a kind, that is not the traditional democratic norm. Um, the threats that all of these Republicans and Democrats get from, you know, that, that a lot of leaders like Donald Trump um, encourage is a kind of authoritarian rule. It's not politics by argument, by, um, you know, by politics or campaigns or, or traditional measures, it's politics by intimidation. And that's a very new and I think dangerous uh, part of all this. And how did you tap into that conservative perspective, especially coming from your background? Yeah, I mean, I've never been, I mean, people I'm sure would disagree with this because people love to criticize the press for being whatever. Um, I have over the years, you know, interviewed, gotten to know, profiled literally hundreds of politicians. Um, I know in my heart that there are no, there's no monopoly on good ideas, good people, bad people, horses, asses, can you say that? Um, we have bells ringing in the sense of ominous. Um, and, and look, I've just never been a terribly partisan person. Although I also think that when I became a journalist, you know, there are certain basic principles like fairness and objectivity, which kind of went out the window because I'm not necessarily objective and unbiased when it comes to threats to democracy or racism or things that we all kind of agreed were not good things a few years ago, but now, you know, are are kind of squarely part of the debate. I mean, peaceful transfers of power, Um, things that you just don't say are now routinely said, right? Um, So I don't think it's bias to say that, you know, a crazy Trump supporter went into Nancy Pelosi's house and attacked her elderly husband with a hammer because it happened. Factually, it happened. Mm-hmm. But you could watch, you know, Fox News or whatever tonight and, you know, you'd get a debate about this. But that's not what I signed up for. Definitely. And given everything that has been happening... Just These bells from... are great, by the way. I like <laughs> yeah. Did you plan this? It's really good. It adds really a poetic adds to the intensity Absolutely. of this conversation. I love it. Yeah, the bells toll for democracy. <laughs> but there's been so much that has happened mm-hmm. just since this book has been published. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, 
if you could go back and write another chapter to your book, mm -hmm. what would it be on? Oh, it would be a whole other book. I'm, I, it would, it, it's a lot. I mean, so I put this to bed in about April around. The book came out July 12th. Um, I pretty much let go of it early April. And um, I, you know, so since then, Liz Cheney lost, um, you know, Trump has gotten only stronger, more stronger. I mean, Biden kind of tanked. I mean, the Democrats are a lot more vulnerable than they looked um, six months ago. Um, I mean, it looks like the 150-odd senators and, and congressmen in the Republican Party who voted against Joe Biden's certification, which, again, is completely unprecedented, and, you know, from what I can tell, without any basis, um, they will all be reelected, or men, most of them will be reelected fairly easily. They won't pay a price. So, you know, the, the, the sort of bar continues to move in a very ominous direction. And, you know, I was talking to someone at my, my office a few hours ago about this, and, you know, early on, I mean, it looked like a farce. It looked like, you know, oh, Donald Trump was impeached for making a perfect phone call, and we all laughed. And then everyone was like, oh, you know, the the peaceful transfer will occur on January 6th, and then actually there was a violent insurrection on January 6th. And then everyone thought for a few days, okay, this is all over. Uh, we're going to revert to the norm. No, I mean, Kevin McCarthy literally went to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring, and, you know, he's the front runner again. So here we are. So who's to say where we're going to head next? And how much of what you describe in your book about these Republicans kind of doing whatever Trump wants, even though they criticized him when yeah. he was first running. Yeah, and do privately too. Yes, yeah. exactly. How much is it a Trump effect and how much is it a DC effect? It's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, politicians are predisposed to self-perpetuation more than most. Um, I think they are willing to swallow a lot more than other people who might just be saying, I don't need this. I'm going to try to find another job. I mean, you know, people like Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy and Marco Rubio are terrified of not having that title or parking space and, and so forth. And that's true of people in both parties. But um, I've never seen it more egregious that, you know, they, they set out their principles and you think they stand for something. And they say explicitly that they stand for something in, say, 2016, 2017. Then all of a sudden they're 180 degrees in a different place because of this, pe this person that they have so little respect for or said as much. Um, is sort of leading them in another direction and his voters follow and his voters are their voters. And kind of going back to Trump and feels like, I feel like in, 2016, in 2020 when mm -hmm. he lost the election, yeah. I think many people kind of hoped that Trump would sort of die away in the Republican sure. Party and that would be the last of it. Yeah, but, a lot of Republicans thought that. Yeah, but it just seems like, like you said, now he's still more powerful than ever. And in the Republican Party. In the, but yes, yeah, in the it, Republican yes, Party. Yes, and, um, and it feels like there's so many people that are, there's this rise of extremist right-wing mm -hmm. MAGA yeah. like candidates that are running and... Yeah. Um, even in the future, like looking at the 2024 election, presidential sure. elections. And you talked about in your book, you describe like the C-listers yeah. uh, gaining status due to the proximity with Trump. Yeah. And how has like this power and status occurred like through that? And 
you know, a lot now we're seeing many people using Trump to mm-hmm. gain popularity oh, yeah. and, and bring out that vote and tune into, you know, Trump support in the Republican Party. Like, what yeah. does that look like for the future of D.C. politics? I mean, I mean, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I do think that, look, we still have two major parties in this, two major parties in this country. And the, the next president in, will be elected in 2024 will either be a Democrat or Republican certain. Um, so the most likely Republican will be Donald Trump and the most likely Democrat is going to be Joe Biden. I mean, you can hate that choice all you want, but that's what it looks like from here. I could be wrong, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I, I can't reiterate enough, is the, one of the reasons Trump has remained so powerful is because no one has really fought back inside that party. Um, I mean, Democrats have fought back. I mean, not always terribly well or effectively, but you know, they're the opposition. But there's no opposition for him inside the Republican Party. And I and I do think if there were ten Liz Cheneys and ten Mitt Romneys instead of one of each, it'd be a whole different ballgame. Um, I mean, the reason Richard Nixon ultimately left the White House is not because he was shamed or disgraced by the Washington Post or by you know what the the House and Senate were were investigating. Uh, a bunch of sort of elder statesman Republicans from the House and Senate walked across, walked down Pennsylvania, went down Pennsylvania Avenue, visited him and said, Mr. President, it's time to go. And these are hardcore conservatives. And they said that you've lost the support. And that's kind of why he stepped down. Now, if Nixon had Fox News at his disposal, could he have ridden that out? Um, Maybe, but he didn't. And ultimately, it was the Republicans and the Washington Post and a bunch of others who, who stopped him. And why do you think they haven't fought back? You mentioned two Republicans yeah. who have taken a stance, and I would argue from a political standpoint, it's probably not the smartest to yeah. support Trump in the way that they are, to well, the extent that they are. Yeah, I mean, they would point to any number of people who didn't support Trump who lost. I mean, Republicans. I mean, Liz Certainly, Cheney, yeah. you know, any number of people before her. So, I mean, yeah, in a pure kind of, um, you know, calculus, yes, but... I mean, I talked to all these people, the people who lost, the people who did. I mean, Liz Cheney, Romney, I mean, they're all recurring characters in the book. And um, they seem fine. Um, I think in some ways they're liberated. I think they probably, I mean, I don't know if they sleep better or not. I mean, that's a cliche. But, man, I think so highly of them, um, more so than I did. I, I feel like as a journalist, as someone who, you know, has dealt with both sides over the years, I have more common cause with the conservatives now because many of the true conservatives I know are, are extremely thoughtfully anti-Trump. And um, a lot of them are Democrat, well, actually not, not most of them are independents now. They've either left the party or, or you know, are just never Trumpers. That's their identity. And they're great with it. I'm sure Liz Cheney, you know, it's interesting to say that Liz, Liz Cheney, you know, got clobbered in her Republican part, primary in the most Trumpy state in the country, Wyoming. And basically within a few months of that, in each direction, she got standing ovations at the Ronald Reagan Library in California and the um, Kennedy Library in Boston. So, I mean, both ends of the country, both ends of the spectrum, you know, both iconic presidents, and they're giving her awards. He won the Profile and Courage Award at the Mm -hmm. Kennedy Library. So, I don't know. Um, I'd say that's, whether it's a consolation or not, um, I, I think good for her. Is that maybe, I guess I'm a, bi- I'm a little biased then, but whatever. Yeah. And I think in the Trump 
administration, it kind of really amplified nepotism. And we see him keeping, essentially firing people who he disagreed with and keeping whoever was closest to him people who really aligned with his values and what he Mm -hmm. thought. And if you didn't think the the way he thought, then you're out, basically. And so kind of looking at this from a bigger picture, even just before Trump, Mm -hmm. what's the balance between elite nepotism and policy experts in Washington? And then how was that then amplified during the Trump administration? Well, I mean, look, he, he, this was not a meritocracy. This was, I mean, there were blood relatives, there were friends, there were, you know, the one person in the Senate, Republican in the Senate for a long time who supported him was Jeff Sessions. Uh, backbencher, no one ever talked about him for attorney general, but you know, he was nice to Trump, so he's the attorney general. Um, so yeah, I mean, the one criteria was how nice are you to me? I mean, it's all very kind of, you know, five-year-old kind of thing. I mean, it's very simple. Um, it's a form of nepotism, hackism, you know, what is it? Um, cronyism. I mean, all the worst isms that we are, were thought, we thought were just like to be avoided, but you know, day one or day three or four, I mean, Ivanka and Jared are uh, given big White House positions and, and so forth. So it was all downhill from there. Why hasn't the Democratic Party seen that same change and the same kind of Trump effect, if you will, but, you know, for the other side, despite being mm-hmm. subject to the same elitism and power politics in D.C.? Yeah, I mean... He or she hasn't come along. I don't, but I don't think they're as susceptible. I honestly don't. I mean, I've done a bunch of thought exercises and had a lot of conversations about what would that look like if there was like a liberal Trump, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, some kind of what you would call like extremist who says problematic, you know, maybe offensive things about some group or something. Um, you know, I, you know, that person all of a sudden starts doing really well in polls. Um, they have kind of a built-in constituency. Um, next thing you know, um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are living in fear of that person. I don't know. It's, it's hypothetical. It's never happened. I, I don't, if it does happen, I don't know what it would look like. Um, but, you know, until it does, I mean, the prime example and the sort of running example is all in the other party. So. And what does, where do we go from here, essentially? Mm-hmm. You know, we have now this rising extremism, yeah. you called fascism, sure. um, in the Republican Party through, you know, the Trump, MAGA, like, white conservative nationalism yeah. that we're seeing rising. Yeah. And if if Biden, if it is between Biden and Trump mm-hmm. in the 2024 elections, mm-hmm. If Biden wins, do you still think the Trump, that whole group that we've been seeing rising yeah. over the past few years, do you think that will still continue? Or like, what does the future look like? You know, obviously, I mean, we sort of, it kind of depends. Well, first, this is going to gonna run before the midterm. This will run before next week, right? So Potentially, yeah. Potentially. So, okay. So I, I will fudge this a little bit. So. <laughs> There, this might run bet- before a midterm that hasn't happened yet, or it might run after. I don't know. Um, basically, though, um, we'll see what the voters say. I mean, I think if it's a really good night for Republicans, they win the Senate, they win a bunch of House seats, a bunch of governors. I mean, it'll vindicate everything. It's like, all right, well, 
we rode this horse and it worked for us this cycle and let's just keep doing it and Trump will take all kinds of credit for it you know um, people will give Trump all kinds of credit for it and then we'll go on to the next one and you know I, I think a second Trump administration beginning in 2025 you know I don't know how old he'd be you know late 70s almost as old as Biden now I don't know um, he uh, whatever the numbers are it, it, it would um, you know he wouldn't he wouldn't even be less checked and balanced. Um, you know, he wouldn't have the threat of re-election unless he decides to call off term limits. I mean, God knows. I don't, yeah. I don't want to think about it. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, if there's one principle that we've seen since, say, 2015, it's that it always gets worse um, in there. I mean, in the Republican Party, it has always gotten worse. The bar is getting pretty low. I don't know where you go from here, though, and it's sort of scary. So. Yeah, I agree. And certainly yeah. the midterms will enlighten us a little bit about the future of the Republican Party. Yeah. And we end every Fly on the Wall interview okay. with a lightning round. So we have okay, good. quick questions, Let's do it. quick answers. Love it. The first one, weirdest place you've ever conducted an interview? Oh boy. Um, a treadmill. I once was on a treadmill in a New Hampshire hotel with Mike Huckabee, then governor of Arkansas. He was running for president in 2008. He was on one treadmill, I was on another treadmill, and I interviewed him. So I called it in the New York Times an exclusive treadmill interview, I believe. That is hilarious. I love that. Yeah. And who is the best dressed person you've ever interviewed? Oh, boy. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm terrible with, I mean, look at me. Um, you can't see this, but I'm not like a, maybe I'm all right. Um, oh, I'm gonna choke on this. Um, I will say um, uh, Obama, because he's a good dresser and I've interviewed him. Although it was a, last, it might've been a phone interview. Who knows how he was dressed, so I can't really say. How's that for a duck? No, I'll say Obama, good dresser. He is well-dressed. He's a well-dressed yes. guy, yeah. And finally, what is something you wish people would stop saying about your books? Um, well, obviously that they're boring, that they're terrible, that I'm not going to buy them. Um, I would like them to stop saying that um, they're funny, which is weird because it's good to be funny because there's not enough, you know, people say I, I laughed on every page, which is a great thing. You can get away with a lot by making people laugh. But, you know, I think sometimes it can obscure the serious um, message here, which is that the stuff is for keeps, mm -hmm. the stakes keep getting higher, and unfortunately the spiral keep sort of speeding up in, in ways that are kind of scary, so. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, um, great. We love what you had to say. Thanks, so am I the fly on the wall? Like, is that, like, how does that work? Is the, so we're the fly. Oh, you're the fly. We're and the I'm, the wall. Yes. Okay. And you were. Okay, so I'm the thing that goes on. Yeah, okay, in so, the room. So basically, I'm not supposed to notice you. You're just like, Okay, so you're both the fly, but also the things that the fly is listening to, but I'm the one who doesn't know about the fly, so exactly. I'm being yes. eavesdropped on by the fly on the wall. Yes, there is some confusion on who is the fly. It's a good name for yes. a podcast, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's good, but it's a good conversation piece. You can sort of hash this out and, um, you know, you can have all kinds of philosophical profundity at the end of a podcast like this. Either way, yeah. I enjoyed it, and thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you so, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Fly on the Wall. 
You can find us on social media by searching at FlyInTheWallPod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyinthewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly in the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, Managing Director of the Pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.